So, if you're ready to jump, say jump. Well, half of you are ready to jump, so we'll go with the half that are ready and the other of you can catch up, okay? All right, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. That's going to be our home base for the morning. We're going to be a little bit everywhere, though, as we introduce our subject this morning. So buckle them seatbelts up because we got a lot of ground to cover. I've already spoken with wonderful Cassidy back on the computer, and she's got her uh, finger on the arrow button, and she's ready to go, okay? So you better be ready to go because she's ready to go. Uh, last week, we began a new series called The Core of Kataba, Defining Our Values. This series follows the previous series that was discussing our mission, the why of why we're here. Like, why do we do what we do? So we discussed that for a while, and now we're talking more about the core, the values. What defines us? What do we value as a church? And these values weren't things that we just like looked at each other and we were like, man, you know, Aaron, you know, Stephen, you know, deacons, you know, leadership team. We really want this to be our church, and this is what we're going after. These are things that we saw in our church, and we want to see only increased and more valued in the coming days. These are things that our church holds dear, and if you don't have this value or these values in your life, I would encourage you to hop on board, because these values are what we value as a church and as a local body. So last week, we talked about gospel centrality. We talked about that the good news of God's grace is our hope. It is the center of everything we believe and impacts everything we do. You heard it right here. The gospel is central. The fact that Jesus came and lived a life perfectly on this earth in my place. He died a death that I should have, was buried and rose again like I never could so that I could have the gift of salvation is central to everything that we do. So that's our first value that we discussed. But this week, we're going to continue on, and we're going to be talking about a kingdom mentality. This is the fact that the church is furthered when everyone serves together. As members of one body, we use our diverse gifts for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, the key there is God's kingdom. It's real easy in life, and something that I've gotten very convicted over this week as I had to study and prepare for this, was the fact that I am not always about God's kingdom. But the problem with that is you can't be neutral because you're always furthering a kingdom. There's no in-between. Everything you do, every day you live, every moment you wake up, you are furthering something and you are building something. And as Christians, we ought to be about building God's kingdom and furthering his kingdom like we're going to see this morning. But at Catawba, we value having a kingdom mentality. I told you we would be in Romans 12. We will get there, okay? But before we get there, we have to set up the stage for what we're going to be reading in Romans 12. We have to set up the idea of what is a kingdom mentality. Well, a mentality is a mindset that then is going to work itself out into our actions, right? It's kind of like a mindset that's going to affect my lifestyle. So we got what a mentality is, but what about kingdom? What is that speaking to? You see, the kingdom of God, I believe, is a term that has been misused at times in our modern culture. Because I'll tell you what I thought of when I hear the word kingdom. What I think of when I hear the word kingdom of God, I think of a future tense. Does anybody else do that? Anybody else think of maybe a future tense? Like you hear the kingdom of God, and then your mind instantly is going to Revelation, 
the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's setting up his kingdom on this earth, the authority of Jesus. All good stuff, right? I hope so. I hope you're saying amen, right? Right? Come on now, talk to me this morning. That's all good stuff. However, that is not the only thing that the kingdom of God is. This past year, before I graduated from Southeastern, I had a class in the summer in the Minor Prophets. And one of, one of my teachers, uh, the teacher who taught that class, he challenged us as a class. One of our assignments was we had to trace the phrase, the last days in the Old Testament throughout the prophets, and specifically the Minor Prophets, but the entire Old Testament as well. And you want to know what I found out? The term the last days has been hijacked and been made into something it not always is. Because in the Old Testament, when you trace the last days from our English translation back into the Hebrew translation, it does not always refer to the end times. It can, it does, but it does not always do so. And the same thing I believe is true with the term the kingdom of God. It's not just a future tense. Although it is, because trust me, when it comes, it's going to be intense and it's going to be insane and we aren't going to know what to do with ourselves, okay? But the kingdom of God is both past, present, and future. The word kingdom we're going to see this morning in a verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. You know this chapter because it's very, very popular because it's called the Lord's Prayer, right? Also the Sermon on the Mount. You're right, Molly. It is the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the Lord's Prayer is the specific passage. Now, it's better called the Disciples' Prayer, the model prayer, because this wasn't for Jesus to keep praying. This was for us to learn how to pray through his example. But he opens it up and he says, um, right after the term, hallowed be your name, comes this verse. And it says, your kingdom come. Let's say that together. Your kingdom come. Now, instantly when we read this verse, we think future tense, right? We're asking God to send his kingdom. Well, let's break it down a little bit. Your, that's a pronoun, right? And guess what? Just like it is in the Greek, it is in the English. It's a pronoun that means you or your. It's not me or mine, it's you or your. So whose kingdom are we talking about? God's. We're talking to God. Jesus was praying this prayer for the disciples to pray to the Father. So we're talking about your, God's, Kingdom. There's an interesting word, kingdom. Now, I don't know about what you think of when you hear the word kingdom. We're seeing a terrible display of bad kingdom building right now in Europe. That's kingdom building. We're seeing a display, though, of what happens when kingdom building meets flesh and sin. This is not a bad kingdom building. This is a perfect kingdom. Your kingdom, God's kingdom. It comes from a Greek word that literally gives the idea of domain, dominion, and dignity. I want you to think about those three words when you think of a kingdom. Domain, dominion, and dignity. The king has dominion, complete authority, over the domain that is his. And he rules with complete dignity, respect. Your kingdom come. Now, if we're not careful, we have fun with the word kingdom and we completely miss the word come. Now, when I read that, I think future. But that's because of me, my culture, right? 
If we actually break this word down, we're going to find that the tense of this word makes a huge deal. Yes, that is a correct and perfect way to translate it. But this word, the tense of it, is very important because it's going to make a, help us as we understand how this word plays out. It is found in this text, the word come is translated from a Greek word that is in a aorist active tense. You say, Stephen, I'm not here for grammar class. Great. Give me 30 seconds and we'll be done and you'll get the point, okay? We don't have the aorist in English. So here's what it is. It's an undefined period of time. It's an undefined action. Typically, it's used to define an action that begins in the past, that continues on, and has not ended. Your kingdom come. Now, in the future, tomorrow, next month, in the end times when Jesus returns and makes everything perfect, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come here and now. We've seen it come in the past, we want to see it now, and we want to see it in the future. That is literally, I'll use a teenage word here to communicate this because I've been hanging out with them too much this weekend, that is the vibe of this verse, okay? That's what this verse is trying to communicate to us. It's trying to communicate to us that we ought to be praying to see God's kingdom, not just in the future, but here and now and in the future. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, as we have already said, is past, present, and future. In the Old Testament, we saw amazing pictures of God's kingdom furthered through his people Israel. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is speaking to Moses here, and he's telling him what to say to the children of Israel. And he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is literally communicating to Moses, Hey, you and the people that you are leading are here to further my mission and my name amongst the peoples. I want you to be holy, and I want you to be set apart because you are going to further my kingdom on this earth. We see that Jesus comes as a king, but a very different type of king, right? Not the king that you would expect. He comes and he dies on a cross for us. We talked about it last week during Gospel Centrality. He rose again for us. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 says it this way, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The kingdom of God we have seen in the past was furthered through his people. And Jesus comes and establishes a new covenant and allows the church, the Gentiles, to start participating in the furthering of his kingdom. It's a complete change in everything that was. And Paul says, 
I just counted an honor that I get to be a part of furthering God's kingdom. Just the fact that I get to make known the wisdom of God to people on this earth and anything that will listen up above me. I get to display God's word, God's kingdom. I get to be a part of furthering it here. God's kingdom is both past, present, and future. And right now in the present is what we want to talk about. Because we value a kingdom mentality here and now. Not in the future. Yeah, it's going to be great. Not in the past. Yeah, it was great. Right now. And so we get to a verse in the book of Acts. Acts 9.31. Acts 9.31, King Jesus has come, and here's what it says. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now we just read over that, and in our culture, we didn't think a thing of it. The church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, It's a term of unity there. It didn't say each different body and each different city. It's referring to the church, the body of Christ that's found in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. If you weren't tracking with it up to this point, those are all three different places, okay? It's literally saying that these three different expressions of the body of Christ, these three local expressions were so unified that you could literally see Christ in each one of them, and they can be referred to as the body of Christ, the called out assembly, right? The church in each of these cities. It says that they had peace, were being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit It multiplied. That's what it looks like when you have a kingdom mind. There's multiplication. The kingdom of God is furthered. So how does that happen and what does that look like? Because we are here to proclaim the king and his sacrifice for humanity. So we see and we will see this morning that the kingdom is growing through the humble service of united disciples. The kingdom of God is growing through the humble service of united disciples. Right now, I would encourage you to set aside all of the things that you are thinking about right now when it has to do with kingdom building, right? Earlier I said, we are seeing bad kingdom building, right? So set that to the side, and I want you to think with me right now, what would happen if you, starting right now, instantly inherited a very prominent position in our government. Now, you might turn it down, uh, but uh, if you accepted it, what would it look like in your life if you instantly were responsible for the livelihoods and lives of multiple people under your control and every action you did might or might not affect the livelihoods of people who are outside of your control? Would it affect the way that you approach your daily life? I hope so. Would it affect how connected you are with what's going on in our country and the world on a 
Political scale, maybe? A social scale? A cultural scale? Would it lead you to strive to care for people? Would it change your outlook? Now, that story is mostly fictional, probably for every single one of us, unless one of you is like a secret government spy in here, and you have like some prominent role that we don't know about. If so, don't tell anybody, because we don't want that to get out, okay? But that is mostly fictional. However, as a Christian, you have influence. As a Christian, you literally have the ability to further God's kingdom. And as a Christian, you have a prominent role in his kingdom. So here's the question that we're going to keep asking all morning. Has it affected your life? And if not, why not? We had mentioned that we would be in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. One of my favorite books. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to any, everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This morning, we're going to see three characteristics of people who have a kingdom mentality from Romans chapter 12. Three characteristics of people who have a kingdom mentality. Paul is writing here to a church, and he is encouraging them to be about the work of God. In verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, he's actually going to challenge them that if they want to be about what God is about, they need to completely and utterly give everything they have over to him and be living sacrifices. They need to come out from the world, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed, Paul is going to say, by the renewing of your mind, then you're going to know what is the per good and perfect will of God. In other words, you're going to know how to live as a Christian. So he's calling them to step up and to live as a Christian, to participate in the kingdom of God. And he's going to describe three things in this passage specifically that we can take away. The first characteristic is this, the characteristic of humility is one that defines a kingdom mentality in a person who has it. Humility is a requirement in the kingdom of God. You heard it, a requirement in the kingdom of God. Salvation literally requires humility. You literally have to say, I can't save myself, so I have to depend on another. I will then humble myself and follow after Jesus as my master. It's a requirement. Jesus, the Son of God, the King who came, actually displayed it perfectly. Philippians chapter uh, 2 lets us in a little bit on this, where it tells us that Jesus came and we are supposed to have a mind like His. He came and He lowered Himself. He lived among men. He went to the cross and obeyed His Father, and we ought to have a like mind. Jesus is our example of humility. 
However, if we're not careful, we can have a fake humility. Because you see, humility is not self-hate. This passage is very clear. Do not think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. This means that humility then is not just saying, I'm dumb, I'm an idiot, I don't matter, I'm going to lower myself below somebody, I'm going to make myself out to be this terrible enemy of humanity, and I will be the least of these, and I will just uh, go without... I won't ever eat food. I'll drink water and bread. I'll, like, I'll just live a life of humility. That's fake humility. Because humility is not just debasing myself. Humility actually is seeing myself the way God sees me. Because if we're not careful, we can actually do more harm than good by debasing ourselves. Because guess what? Scripture defines us as children of God, heirs of God. If we're Christians, we're saints. Those are not terms of just like small significance. Those are like large significant terms. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? (laughs) Right? Like that's just such a big term. I am literally an heir of the kingdom of God. That means God has literally promised that he's going to give me everything and access to everything. I'm a saint. I don't feel like a saint some days. But the Bible says I am. I'm a child of the king. So humility then is having a proper view of myself in God's kingdom. Don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. He then goes on and talks about how everybody has a different function. Just like a body has different functions, so everyone in God's kingdom has different functions. So humility then is recognizing my function in God's kingdom and finding it and being all about him and his kingdom. Being sold out. A kingdom-minded individual is so consumed with their Lord that they give everything they are to further his kingdom. We said earlier, everyone is building something with their life. A kingdom communicates dominion, authority. Who has the authority in your life? If you are a Christian, it must be God. And if it is not, the Bible literally says, your life will face discipline, trials, and issues. Now, you'll face discipline, trials, and issues the other way too. But it promises that you will for sure most definitely face an extensive amount if you do not allow the Lord to have authority in your life life. This mission of following him and making him our utmost authority, this mission of being kingdom-minded must be central to our lives. It's not a priority list of God gets number one and then, you know, everything else falls underneath. No, it is central and everything flows out from the fact that he has authority in my life. My life is his domain and I will give him the dignity that he deserves. So you say, well, how do I know then if I'm humble? Here's some questions that I asked myself this week, okay? And I'll just go ahead and give you a hint. I didn't pass all the questions the way that I thought I would, okay? What happens if you gave six months of your life leading someone to Jesus Christ, they chose to trust in him and started coming to church with you? 
You spend six more months discipling them and pouring into their life and teaching them how to follow Jesus. And then they come to you one day and say, hey, for the health of my family and the spiritual, just we connect better, we're going to start going to another church. And also I need someone else to disciple me. Because I feel like this is just capped and I need some extra help in growing my relationship with God. How would you respond to that after pouring a year of your life into someone? Now, here's the question, here's, the, here's where that, like, it meets. If I am building God's kingdom, I ought to care for them and ask them if there's anything I've done, obviously. But if there is nothing and what they're saying is true, how do I respond to that? If I am humble and about God's kingdom, I ought to be excited and joyous that they're growing. But if I'm about my kingdom, I'm going to be upset and annoyed. Here's another one. What if you served and did something in the church world, right? It doesn't just have to be at this church. It can be the church world, right? The body of Christ. You're doing something good. And you did it for one year every day, but never, ever got recognition for it. Would it still be worth it? If the answer is no, I can tell that I have pride in my heart. That's where the rubber meets the road with this characteristic. Because kingdom-minded individuals are humble. Secondly, they, are, they have unity. Humility is the first characteristic. Unity is the second characteristic that we see in this passage. It's in verses 4 and 5 where Paul literally breaks down this analogy of one body with many members. He portrays it with a human analogy, but his goal is to communicate a principle of unity to a disunified people. See, this is where understanding the Roman background helps. The church at Rome had Gentiles and Jewish Christians, and there was some tension there, right? If you read through the book, you'll recognize that in the first three chapters, because Paul literally takes the first three chapters of an entire letter to communicate one principle. All of you are a bunch of sinners, and you're equally sinful before God. It doesn't matter whether you came from Abraham or whether you're a Gentile. All of you all are a bunch of sinners. Well, why was that? Because there's some disunity there, right? They thought that they might be better because they were from Abraham, right? And so I'm from the good family in Kataba, and you're from the bad family in Kataba, and I'm better than you, right? It's a little bit bigger than that, but that's kind of the idea there. And so he communicates them to them, no, all of you all are sinful. And then he takes another three chapters in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and he explains how God is going to use Israel, how he has used Israel, and how he is using Israel throughout those chapters. And the reason he does this is because the Gentiles, some of the Gentiles were like, hey, we're here and we're taken over. See y'all, y'all had your moment, right? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's all about Jesus and you need to be following after him. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, God has poured his blessings out on Israel and he will continue to do so. It's here though and it's about Jesus. Get your minds corrected. It's not about whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. And so he's already taken multiple chapters in this letter to communicate this idea of unity. And then right after Romans chapter 11, he's going to come in and he's going to give a human analogy of unity. And he talks about a body with many members that have different functions. His goal is unity is possible in the midst of diversity. Just like your body works together and you have a foot, a thumb, an appendix. Nobody wants to be the appendix. Um, but 
And, and oddly enough, I actually looked up the appendix this week while I was studying for this. Um, it's funny how you just like over, uh, you look at all these different things. But there was a lot of people that were like, given the appendix like up the river, right? They were like, you don't need your appendix. We hate the appendix. Like it has no use, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, like chill out on the appendix, right? But um, they do say that like there's not as much um, found use for that organ. However, I've met people who have their appendix out and then they say, well, you know, like sometimes like I have these issues, right? So like there might be some use. We just don't know it yet, <laughs> Our body was put there to work in harmony together, and when one part is missing, we might not realize it instantly, but over time, we might realize it through something. Many of you have been here for a few years, and you have gotten to travel along and watch as I got to find out that I had uh, irregular heartbeats a few years ago. So it started out with uh, me feeling weird one day and going to the doctor and then them putting me on a monitor and uh, they clocked my heart at 260 and they were like, you can't do anything. And some of you were here for that. You were like, I was sitting back there one day and we had like an event and I couldn't do anything. And so I was just like, hey, put that over there, put that over there, right? And uh, it was really awkward, right? Because I felt awkward not helping. Um, but I remember when they went in, they were like, hey, we're going to go in and we're going to try and find out what's going on because we have no idea what's going on with you. I was like, awesome, right? So they spent five hours mapping my heart. Five hours. And finally they found the node that was a problem, right? And so the doctor comes in afterwards and he's like, hey, I'm going to explain to you what happened. And I'm like, awesome, because you're going to have to like really help me here, okay? And so he explained it in layman's terms. He was like, you know, your heart, it functions on two planes. You have a electrical and a plumbing side, right? Your plumbing's great. And I was like, awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, that's a great compliment, okay? And then he's like, your electrical side, though, has some, ma some major issues that we had to address. I was like, awesome, okay? Sweet. What did you have to do? And he was like, there's a node in there that was malfunctioning, and basically your heart uh, it would get stuck in a certain circuit and it would basically just like, like imagine something getting stuck like a piston or something, like the faster it goes, the more it wears it out. And he was like, that's similar to what was happening and your heartbeat was getting stuck and it was just going faster and faster and faster and it was wearing out that circuit. And I was like, great, so did you fix it? And he was like, yes, I did. I was like, awesome, right? But I got to thinking about that and my thought was this. When those things would happen, when I would have, if you want to call it an episode or whatever, I would feel like I was going to pass out. It would restrict blood flow to the rest of my body. I would get short of breath. All from not, e not even just like the organ of the heart, but a small circuit inside of my heart was causing all of that problems. All of them. All of those problems. And until my heart could work in unison to where my body could work in unison, I had issues. And here's what Paul is saying. A church has to be unified. Whether you are like this node on the backside of the heart that nobody can see, or whether you are the nose in the middle of the face that everybody can see. You have a job 
in the body of Christ. You have a function. And just because you're not necessarily always visibly noticed, if your function is not happening, does not mean that it will not end in devastation for the body later. That's an important thing to hear. We don't always notice when someone is not functioning properly in the body of Christ. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody that you don't even really know well here. But they're just not functioning. Something's going on in their life, and they're not able to function like they ought. Because we're humans, we miss out on that sometimes. Because your pastors are humans, they miss out on that sometimes. But it doesn't mean that you will not be missed in a great and amazing way if your function is left out of the church for an extended period of time. The church must work together in unity. They must be unified, and it is only as they are unified and each member is fulfilling the function that they have that we can continue on and see the kingdom of God further. So you say, Stephen, what does unity look like? Well, here's the tension. Unity does not just mean that you can cancel out truth. Right? Because the kingdom of God here, we got to understand this, it goes beyond Catawba Valley Baptist Church. It goes beyond you. It goes beyond the Baptist denomination. Yikes. I know some of you, I just burst your bubble, okay? There are other people who are Christians who are not in a Baptist church. It is true, okay? The kingdom of God is bigger than a church, a denomination, or a person. So then how do you have unity when you still hold to certain things that are true that you believe? There's a tension there. And the tension is found and answered in Jesus. He came in grace and truth. He spoke truth to all who would listen, and he lived a gracious life with all who would walk with him. And you say, how are two things possible in one? Well, in Exodus 34, we see a picture of God, the Lord. This is Yahweh, Jehovah, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, who are the Godhead that live together in unity. And it says that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And he will hand out judgment. So we see that God perfectly displays what it means to live out love and judgment, grace and truth. They are not mutually exclusive. Randy Alcorn uh, has a quote, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. He says that truth minus grace equals legalism, right? We got the Bible, it's all we need, and so we're just going to literally use this as a weapon and carve up anyone who stands in our way. Well, that's not good, that's not healthy, and yes, that's legalism, that's a problem. But grace minus truth is deception. We're just going to love everyone and allow anything to happen. And we're never going to say a word if it goes against what God's word says. Well, you're just deceiving yourself because you actually aren't even abiding by God's word then. So where does it meet? It meets in this. Truth plus grace, grace and truth together is the gospel. 
The fact that a perfect God cares enough for us that he would still send his son in the midst of our sin to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him and that we could imperfectly follow after him. And we're supposed to display that in how we further God's kingdom and how we are unified. Meaning that, yes, we know that we're imperfect, but we're striving after truth. And so we are unified in our striving after truth, and we are going after the gospel. We are going after Jesus. We are seeking to further his kingdom. So thus we can find unity in Christ, even when we disagree on all the non-essentials around it. Does that make sense? This is what we're after. Unity. So therefore, if another church succeeds, I should be happy. Whew. Not everybody's happy in here that another church is succeeding. Man, some of you all are like, man, no. It's not our church. Well, it's great. It's the kingdom of God. As long as they are preaching the gospel and following after Jesus, we ought to be happy for them. Those with truth without grace do not really have the truth, and those with grace without truth do not really have grace. In Jesus, we behold the glory of the one, full of grace and truth, says Tim Keller. So as a kingdom builder, I must be about unity. So you say, how do I know if I have unity? Well, here's a couple of questions I asked myself this week, and I didn't pass all of them, okay? Are you more concerned with proving your point than living your life according to Scripture? You can ask my wife. I'm very good at proving my point. Sometimes to a fault. So that one hit a little close to home. Because I would much rather prove my point. Is it concerning to you when someone who doesn't look or act like your culture comes to church? Are you more worried about your position in a ministry than the work of the ministry? Those are some things that you can ask yourself to see if you truly believe in unity. Are you a unifier or are you someone who breeds this unity? The third characteristic, quickly and will be done, is this. It's the characteristic of responsibility. Humility, unity, and responsibility. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let's say that together. Let us use them. You and I have a responsibility in God's kingdom to serve, to humbly serve our heavenly master in unity. We have a responsibility to serve. Everyone has a circle of influence, right? Everyone has a circle of influence. Now, some of you might have a square, of influence just because you're different, okay? But everyone has a realm of influence that they have. And your circle will move. So your circle will invade other people's circles that I will never have influence over. My circle will invade people's circles that you'll never have influence over. And together we are operating in God's big old kingdom, his big old circle of his kingdom, and we are going around, and our responsibility is this. How are we using the influence we have? How are you influencing others? 
We're not concerned if somebody else has a larger circle of influence than I have. We all have one, so how am I using it? It's personal. Are you serving and are you functioning as the member of the body of Christ that you are? Do you even know what that means and do you even know how that works out in your life? Do you even know how you can serve? how you are gifted, how you can function? Or are you letting it slip through the cracks? There's a TV show a couple of years ago, and I am not endorsing it, okay? I read up on it a little bit here, and uh, so don't go home and be like, Pastor Stephen endorsed this TV show. I don't know a whole lot about it, okay? But I do know the plot line because I read up on it. It was called Designated Survivor. And I read up on the plot line, I was like, that looks kind of, eh. So I uh, actually went up and I looked it up. It's actually based on a true thing that happens in our government. The plot of the TV show is basically like, there's this secretary of the agriculture in some president's administration. The president and all of his secretaries, they go and they get in a room and a nuclear bomb goes off and they're all dead. And so the secretary of the agriculture was designated the designated survivor in a safe location. So in one act, he becomes president of the United States from secretary of something or another, like low down on the totem pole. This dude should never have been president. And it's a show that's all about that. But then I looked it up, and it's actually something that our country does. Our country, whenever there is a big meeting of uh, leaders, so say a State of the Union address that just happened, and all of the main leaders of our government are in one room, they will design, the president will designate a member of his cabinet to sit out in a safe location and watch in case something was to ever happen and our entire government was to be wiped out in one swoop. And I looked it up and I started like studying this out. I was like, dude, this is actually like really, really cool. Like they have all of this like mapped out for us that we are ready. And this this show kind of like supposedly the storyline went into like all this pressure and stress that would come with becoming president of the United States after being secretary of something or another and like all the pressure that you would face. Could you imagine that? In like 60 seconds, you're watching the State of the Union and then all of a sudden, boom, everything goes black because a bomb went off or something. Who knows what happened? And then boom, you're president of the United States. Some of us have a lot of opinions on how the president should act, but none of us want to be president. Yikes. That's scary. But here's what I thought about as I read and studied that out. And yes, it's going to be a corny preacher line, but we're, as Christians, we're all designated survivors left on this earth. Jesus rose again, he left this earth to go to heaven, and he designated us to stay. He designated his followers to stay and to further his kingdom. He gave us a great responsibility. He called us saints, heirs, and children of God, adopted sons of the kingdom. And he said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So if you are a Christian, you do have influence, you do have a responsibility, and there's no way out of it. The question is, 
are you shirking your responsibility and abandoning it, are you, or, or, or are you obeying God and are you accomplishing what you have been commissioned to do? There's no in-between. So it's time to stop sitting on the sideline and it's time to get into the game, to use a sports analogy. It's time to get off the bench and to get into the game. As Christians, we have a responsibility to God and to each other. If one of us is out of kilter, we have seen that it's felt by the whole body. If we're absent, it's felt by everyone. It restricts the effectiveness of the body. So not carrying out my responsibility as a, someone who's furthering God's kingdom, not being humble, not being someone who breeds unity, that's not a flaw. It's not an area I need to grow in. It's not just how I am. It is disobedience to God. It's sin. I don't know about you, but I have a way of explaining away my faults. <laughs> just something I'm working on, you know. Growing in grace. Amen. You know, you know that Christian saying, just growing in grace today. That means I'm having a terrible day and I'm acting like a sinner, but I just don't want to do anything about it sometimes, right? Maybe not in your life, but that's what it means in mine, right? I'm doing battle with my sin today and I don't feel like doing as much. So, as we come to a close this morning, we have seen that the kingdom of God is not just something in the future, but it's something that we ought to be furthering right now. Can we put our core value back up? The church, let's read it together. The church is furthered when everyone serves together as members of one body. We use our diverse gifts for the sake of God's kingdom. It's his kingdom. We are called to be humble. We are called to be unified. And we do have a responsibility. So as we close, you have simple application and action steps. I mean, it's in the passage. Have you recognized that you have a responsibility as a child of God? Are you operating your life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and taking your responsibility seriously, or are you sitting to the side and not obeying him? Or maybe, can you not even be furthering the kingdom of God because you're not a child of God? We're all God's creation, but we're not all his children. And in order to further his kingdom, you must be a part of his family. So if you look at your life and you say, man, I, I don't know if there's ever been a day in my life where I furthered God's kingdom and not my own, if you're being honest with yourself, well, maybe the next question out of your mouth should be, am I a child of God? Because the Bible says that our lives will produce fruit, and if it's not, that ought to be a signal to us that something's wrong. Are you more concerned with furthering your kingdom or God's kingdom? We are called to have a kingdom mentality. And at Catawba, we will strive to value a kingdom mentality where the church is furthered when everyone serves together as members of one body and where we use our diverse gifts for the sake of God's kingdom. Not just our church, not just our family, his kingdom. Let's bow our heads this morning. We're going to close here in just a second. But as you have heard God's word presented, I would encourage you to think through those questions in your heart. Those questions are not just given as a simple uh, part of the sermon, they are given so that you and I can actually ask ourselves from God's word, are we matching our life with God's word? Are we kingdom-minded? 
And if you're like me this week and you had to answer some of those questions with not necessarily what the Bible would define as a correct answer, I would encourage you to just take this time right now to bow your head, bow your heart, and to confess that. Because it's sin. It's not a flaw. It's not something that you need to work on. It is sin. And confess to God that you need His forgiveness and that you are going to seek to be about His kingdom. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Stephen, what you said about like not being a part of his family, not being a child of God, and I can't further his kingdom if I'm not a part of his family, I kind of hit close to home because I've been wondering. And if that's you, what I would encourage you to do right now is this. I, before I pray, I'm going to ask if there's anyone here like that. And what I would encourage you to do is just raise your hand if that's where you're at. Because I would like to pray for you right now when I pray. So, if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Stephen, I don't know if I'm a part of God's family. And I definitely haven't been furthering his kingdom because it's just not showing up and I don't know. But I would like you to pray for me. If that's you, can you just raise your hand because I'd love to pray for you if you do not know if you're in the family of God. Just raise your hand if that's you. You might be here this morning you're like, Stephen, I have just not been furthering God's kingdom because I'm just sitting on the sidelines and I'm just being a lazy Christian. Well, the time is now. Confess it to him and start serving him and his kingdom. And be humble, unified, and take up your responsibility. Jesus, we come before you and we love you so much. Lord, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that they would make that decision today to follow after you and to start learning about you and who you are and to begin a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we as Catawba Valley Baptist Church would be kingdom-minded, that we would place a high value on that in the coming days, that we would continue to do so. And Lord, that as we obey your will on this earth, we'll see your kingdom furthered and we're going to give you all the praise, whether it's in Catawba, Roanoke, or beyond. We love you, and in Jesus' name, amen.